When it comes to diabetes, women face a host of unique challenges. From pregnancy to PCOS, there are certain things that have to be looked at through a female-centric lens. I'm Krista Lamb, and today on the Diabetes Canada podcast, I'm speaking with Dr. Alana Halperin from the Sunnybrook Research Institute about her work on diabetes and pregnancy and supporting better health outcomes for everyone. So welcome, Dr. Halperin. Thanks so much for having me. And so I wanted to talk to you about diabetes and pregnancy. It's something we've talked about quite a bit on the podcast over the years, and it's a really popular topic. And I wondered why that was something that interested you. I think dating back to my early days in medical training, I was always fascinated by uh, hormones and reproductive hormones, how uh, women get pregnant, what happens to the body while they're pregnant. And um, I even considered obstetrics for a short time, but realized that I was more of a cerebral doctor than a hands-on doctor. And so when I made my way through my internal medicine and endocrine training, it was a natural fit for me to continue working with pregnant women. I think one of the things that has really interested me when I was looking at your work is we've had Dr. Lorraine Lipscomb on the show, and we've had Dr. Denise Fagg on the show, and they, they were really looking at pregnancy and gestational diabetes, which are things that you also look at, but I loved that you also look at postpartum and the things that are really specific to women with diabetes, and can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, for sure. So we know that women who are diagnosed with gestational diabetes have a very high, almost one in two women who are diagnosed with gestational diabetes will develop type 2 diabetes in their lifetime. But there's a general sense from women and their healthcare practitioners that once the pregnancy's over and the need for um, tight glycemic monitoring and medications sort of disappears as soon as the placenta is out, um, that that risk goes away and it doesn't. So a, a lot of my quality improvement work has been around making sure that the message stays with women and their primary healthcare providers that uh, I think of gestational diabetes as a window into the future, um, an opportunity to see what's coming and ideally do something to change that risk over time. Do you ever work with women who have diabetes and not just gestational diabetes? And is there any difference in their postpartum care at all? I certainly do. In fact, um, at the clinic that I work at at Sunnybrook, I'm the primary doctor who looks after what we call the pre-GDM group, which just means they had diabetes prior to gestation. And yes, things change for them postpartum as well because diabetes and pregnancy for all women, type 1, type 2, and gestational, is a time of insulin resistance, which is not miraculous, but it's quite amazing how quickly that insulin resistance disappears as soon as the placenta disappears. Both uh, women with type 1, almost some of them will experience a honeymoon period. In fact, a patient of mine just last week said to me, the biggest cure for having type 1 diabetes is to have babies and then breastfeed them because I need almost no insulin. Unfortunately, she still will need insulin for the rest of her life, but there are big changes in the postpartum period and that require close attention for patients and their providers. It's really interesting because I think that sometimes we forget about the women who have diabetes um, when they're pregnant because we talk a lot about GDM and GDM is incredibly important, obviously. And so I think that you know it's, it's very interesting to see those sort of differences when we're talking about pregnancy and diabetes. Um, however, to go back to GDM, I know that you've done a lot of work in that area as well. And so what are you seeing in terms of the changes? We've talked a lot over the years about finding a way to help a woman with GDM ensure that she lowers her risk of type 2 diabetes in the future, which is something that I think is, is really important and that you've worked on as well. And so what are you seeing as the, the sort of remarkable things there? 
Well, I think that um, it's still a challenge. I, I know, I'm sure Lorraine Lipscomb has spoken about this because she's doing a really important randomized control trial right now that a lot of my patients are enrolling in, which is a home-based lifestyle uh, program. But what I think is hopefully changing is an understanding about the link between, um, and not just gestational diabetes, but disorders of pregnancy and long-term metabolic health. So it's important to cluster gestational diabetes with uh, hypertensive disorders of pregnancy as well. And and we know that when people develop those, their long-term risk is higher, and we want patients and their healthcare providers, their primary care providers to recognize that. Because you can do a 75 gram oral glucose tolerance test six months postpartum, which is what our guidelines recommend, and it be normal. But that doesn't mean your risk is zero. It just means right now your pancreas is still functioning, uh, you know, properly. So you don't have high blood sugars in response to a oral glucose load. But that risk is there long term. And so there needs to be regular screening for that population. And I am seeing more family doctors, obstetricians, checking A1Cs in the first trimester, which is really important because there is so much undiagnosed prediabetes and type 2 diabetes in the general population, and we want to catch those people early in their pregnancy. And I've talked to a lot of women over the years who've had GDM, and one of the things that they talk about a lot is that when they're pregnant, it's the first thing that they're thinking about. It's such a major thought process in their life. And then as soon as they have the baby, they are bombarded with a million other things. And if they get the results back and, and their tests are fine, they sort of put it aside. And do you see a lot of that in your practice? And if you do, what do you, what do you tell women who might be dealing with a million things and the last thing they want to think about is their diabetes risk? Yeah, I mean, I definitely see it. And I don't think that we've necessarily cracked the nut. Um, and that's why I keep mentioning the healthcare providers, because I think, and an interesting place that we could go that we haven't really gone yet is into the pediatric care space. Uh, because sometimes women won't even see their own healthcare providers between pregnancies, but they'll see whoever's looking after their kids, which may or may not be their own primary care doctor. Um, and that would be a place where, you know, those little gentle reminders can, can come up. Um, because, it, you know, diabetes prevention is a public health issue. It's not an individual person's issue. Um, and I think that, you know, we could tie things like immunizations uh, and, and well baby checks to checking in with moms. Um, and there's been some work doing that in the space around um, mom, mom's mental health. But for women who've had hypertensive disorders of pregnancy or gestational diabetes, it's another opportunity to check in and see how they're doing with their health and their lifestyle. But it is not about something that they have to think about on a daily basis when they have a newborn and they're not sleeping because we're talking about lifetime risk. And so that's just about trying to adhere to healthy lifestyle to the best of your ability. You don't need to monitor your sugars if you've had gestational diabetes uh, after you deliver, but you should stick to a healthy diet and regular activity. And that's something the whole family should be doing, sort of thinking about it from a family-centric perspective. Yeah, absolutely. I know Kaberi Desgupta has got some amazing research on diabetes and the family, which mm -hmm. I think it's, it's such an important topic. And I actually had a really, when I saw that you work with PCOS, I found that so fascinating because I have a number of people in my life who have PCOS, and the understanding of the diabetes risk with PCOS is really, um, I think, it, there's a lot that needs to be done in order to educate women and to let them know about that. And so do, with your research, how are you sort of working with PCOS patients? 
to be honest, I'm not doing any real research in PCOS right now, but I can certainly talk to my clinical practice in my area, uh, and I see a ton of women with PCOS. So PCOS, it, which is the usual spiel I give my patients, is polycystic ovary syndrome is the worst name syndrome in the world because what it should be called, and not that this is a good name, but insulin-resistant phenotype of women because you don't need to have polycystic ovaries to have PCOS, and you can have polycystic ovaries and not have PCOS. But the PCOS that you and I are speaking about is caused by insulin resistance. It's caused because people have genetic predisposition, high-risk ethnicity, strong family histories of type 2 diabetes. There are even some genes that have been mapped um, that are specifically related to PCOS and insulin resistance overlap. But then there's usually an environmental factor as well. And so often you'll, I'll see women who had regular periods without any um, unwanted symptoms of uh, excess male hormones such as acne or uh, excess hair growth. And then they slowly gain weight over a few years. Often it's when they're off at university, the sort of freshman 15, or just a change in their lifestyle and change in their metabolism. And with a five to 10 pound weight gain, they they notice their periods start to become irregular. And when I point that out to them, sometimes they're surprised because the cornerstone of treatment in PCOS is the same as early diabetes in its lifestyle. And if you can lose five to 10 pounds by introducing healthier eating and regular activity, and in fact, even if you introduce activity and don't lose weight, my colleague Sheila Laredo has shown this, you can improve your periods by improving your insulin resistance. But we know that if you have PCOS, it's sort of another marker or a window into your future in terms of your risk of developing type 2 diabetes long term. And I think what's interesting about PCOS is it depends on who makes the diagnosis. So uh, I don't mean to malign my, my obstetrical colleagues, but when people are told that they have PCOS through a gynecology lens, there's not nearly as much attention put on the metabolic side of things than if they're told they have PCOS through an endocrinology lens, because we really see the relationship. And if lifestyle's not working, then one of our first treatments is going to be metformin, which is our first line treatment for diabetes as well. So by lowering your insulin levels and lowering your insulin resistance, we improve all the signals that allow you to ovulate regularly um, and balance out your, your uh, male-female hormone levels. I know that, it, it, to me, the really interesting thing is that women in particular have to deal with so many unique issues. And for so many years, we've really looked at it through a sort of genderless lens when there's so many things that people who, um, you know, women have babies, women have periods, women have all sorts of things that we have that are different. And so what do you wish people better understood about women and diabetes? Certainly understanding that A, type 2 diabetes is no longer a disease of old people. And so that we need to be looking for it in our, in our young women because they're going to get pregnant. And then it's not just going to impact them, it's going to impact their offspring as well. Um, you know, there are various different approaches to screening for, for, for diabetes, but if I could say one thing that is actually not yet a guideline, but a recommendation to obstetrical care providers, uh, family doctors or obstetricians and midwives is to get an A1C in the first trimester because there's a lot of undiagnosed diabetes in that population and we have the opportunity to intervene if we had diagnosed it early in pregnancy. Even if it's on the borderline side, then they have the opportunity to meet with, uh, meet with a dietitian and work on their lifestyle and gain an appropriate amount of weight for their pregnancy, then we can reduce their risk of developing overt gestational diabetes. That's been shown in a few studies. So I would say that would be one thing to focus on. And then the other thing is for women living with diabetes already, diagnosed diabetes, my patients with type 1 for sure, is to understand the interplay of the reproductive hormones and glycemic control. 
a lot of my patients have so much variability and a lot more hyperglycemia in the luteal phase of the cycle. That's the two weeks before you have your period when your progesterone levels are higher. And then suddenly you get your period and your blood sugars drop. So some of my patients with type one who use insulin pumps use two different patterns depending on where they're at in their menstrual cycle. And so you have to have a good understanding of the impact of hormones, whether it's routine menstrual hormones or the hormones associated with pregnancy and how that's gonna impact your blood glucose control. And those are really good things for anyone to think about and things that they can talk to their healthcare provider about. So this has been amazing. And one of the things that is completely unrelated to women and diabetes that I really wanted to ask you about and I've been wanting to talk to you about this for a really long time is you also are um, one of the medical staff at the DCAMS program. And for those listening that aren't familiar with DCAMS, that is the program for children with type 1 diabetes that Diabetes Canada runs. It's a camp so that they can have a summer camp experience. And I wanted to ask you about that because I think that um, it's one of the coolest things in the world that you get to volunteer and, and, and go and do that and that your family does that. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? I also think it's one of the coolest things in the world. So thanks, Krista. Uh, I grew up at summer camp. It's a huge part of who I am. And when I learned that such a place existed, I spent many, many hours begging Kusil Perlman at the time, who was the director, to let me come up as a fellow because DCAMPS is generally staffed by pediatricians. I'm not the only adult endocrinologist who goes, but um, it's generally, the residents are generally pedi general pediatrics or endocrine, uh, pediatric endocrine fellows. Um, but I thought, I love camp and I love diabetes, so why don't I try? So I went as a fellow uh, and it was really fun. It was an amazing learning experience. There is no better place to learn how to be an empathetic type one diabetes healthcare professional than camp. Because you see that even if you think you've got all the skills in the world, you've got highs, you've got lows, you've got swings throughout the day and, um, and living with type one diabetes is really, really hard. And unfortunately, there's still a lot of people in the healthcare um, sector that don't appreciate how difficult it is, but camp, even 24 hours at camp is a great place to figure that out. And then I've sort of established it as just being part of my yearly routine. And I go with my husband, who's a family doctor, which is a nice um, model for us because I don't really have a great approach to, you know, if the ankle sprained, do they need an x-ray or not? What to do with the kids with the sore throats and the earaches? So he does the primary care stuff and I do all the diabetes. And our boys come and I think my uh, four and seven-year-olds know way more about type 1 diabetes than any other four or seven-year-olds who don't have any relatives with type 1 diabetes. Um, and in fact, I make them check their sugars a couple times while we're at camp just so they can get the full experience. It's just a really fun place to be because it's a beautiful camp on the shores of a beautiful lake in Muskoka. And we're just there to give the kids a real camp experience. It's not the place to fix their blood sugars. It's not a place to necessarily um, uh, tighten up control. It's a place for them to be around other kids. Some of these kids come from small towns and they've never even met another person with type one diabetes. Um, and then they're safe. And so it's a little bit of respite for their parents as well because their parents know that there's a, a, a whole cohort of physicians and nurses and dietitians and counselors, most of whom also have type 1 diabetes, who are there to um, uh, support them. And we have a lot of fun doing it. I'm very lucky that I get to do it every year. Yeah, I, my experience at DCAMPS, getting to go there as a staff member at Diabetes Canada has it's one of the most transformative places that you'll ever visit because it's just truly wonderful. And so I am really glad I finally got to ask you about that experience. So thank you so much for joining us on the show today and talking to us about some of your research and your work in these areas.
If you would like more information on this topic or any of the others that we've talked about today, please visit diabetes.ca or contact Diabetes Canada. They can be found at info at diabetes.ca. You can also find us on all the social media at Diabetes Canada. And if you like today's show, please be sure to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or the podcast provider of your choice. And don't forget to rate and review us. It really does help others to find the show. Thanks for listening. 